one. Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Pinecker, and I just want to introduce a very special guest, uh, Nathan Smith. Say hello to my audience. Hey, audience. <laughs> uh, I had Nathan come on because uh, early on in my process of starting my channel and then engaging people on Facebook, um, I got to meet Nathan via uh, through Tony Fieldson's Restoration Table uh, group, which is a very dynamic group of people and have very interesting conversations in this group. And, um, and Tony, um, actually, Tony and I are going to be filming something down the road as well. But we had this uh, really good rapport with each other. We clicked very quickly. I actually saw him on Saints Unscripted, and he talked about how he was an evangelical who became uh, LDS. And so that was like an interesting convergence, of course, and that's what this channel is all about. But one of the things I noticed was that there was this very bright person who uh, was posting what I call these long epistles uh, that I was like, wow, that's a lot of reading. And I read some of them, but I'm like, you know, I just need to get this guy in Zoom and start talking to him because this channel is all about engaging interesting people. And so Nathan, um, then and I, uh, he, he and I started getting to know each other and having these really... Um, really good conversations, often lasting about two hours. And so uh, he writes a long epistle and uh, we have a two-hour two conversation about it and other things as well. So that's really what this, uh, this, this is where this all evolved from. Well, just give you a little background here, everybody. Uh, I filmed an interview with Sandra Tanner yesterday and that was going to be the interview that I was gonna post uh, on my typical Friday slot. And uh, unfortunately, we ran into some technical issues. Her internet was kind of uh, just a little haywire. And so basically, Rick Bennett this weekend is going to edit that together. And it's going to be a sal salvageable. It's actually really good because we, I ask her questions and talk about topics that nobody's really, really delved in. And so that's when yesterday afternoon, after this whole debacle happened, and you know what? It's all good. I'm not bothered by it, but I thought I got it went through my Rolodex in my head. And one of the names that popped up was Nathan because him and I were planning on filming an interview this Saturday as well. And so he was uh, so grateful to oblige me. So uh, Nathan, thank you so much for coming to my rescue. It's my pleasure, man. I've been looking forward to this. I think it's yes. going to be a lot of fun. Yes, yes, I agree. And, and uh, really, it's a, it's a fascinating story you have to tell. I and mean, he really hasn't told the full story. He's told little snippets. And I think it's important that I'm engaging the entire restoration. Now, I've done plenty of talking. And I typically like to have my guests do the talking. And Nathan likes to talk. So this is going to work out oh, just yes. perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Nathan, um, give, us, give us your background. Now, you were born um, in Indiana, right? No, no, in Texas. My dad, I always in get, okay, there's always that Indiana connection. <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. Yeah. You, you tell your story. Tell Indiana me where you're, where you're there, born okay. and tell me about your parents. Yeah. Um, so I was born in Houston, Texas. And uh, back in 1993, you know, a million years ago, it feels like now, of course. Um, and then I, uh, like at the age of two, though, I moved with my family up to Austin. And that's where I was raised, essentially. So central Texas, pretty much all of my life. Um my parents, my, my dad was born in, in, as I said, in Indiana, he grew up on a corn farm in Indiana, just outside of Peru. And um, my mom was an army brat. She was born in Germany, um, but she moved around the US like most of her life. So, you know, not really any like particular place there. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I uh, you know, I was just born and raised in Texas. And so your parents were uh, actually converts to the LDS faith. Yes. 
So I'd um, like for you to tell that story. Yeah, yeah. Um, so on both sides of my family, like everyone is is a convert. Um, so we we don't have any like pioneer heritage or anything like that. My both so both my parents are converts, both of their parents are converts. Um, when my dad was nine, I believe he was baptized. And it was around the same time that his parents were also baptized. They encountered some missionaries and they, uh, they ended up joining the church. And then my, on my mom's side, my mom and her two sisters were baptized, I believe when they were teenagers and, uh, their mother was, my grandmother was baptized with them. And then my grandfather, their father, uh, was baptized a number of years later after, uh, some interesting encounters with, uh, with a home teacher, um, but yeah, so and I so I and my siblings are essentially like the first generation born in the church. Like, uh, so uh, so you know we don't have a, we have shallow roots in Mormonism, I guess you could say. So on both sides of the family, what faiths were were they before they converted to Mormonism? That's a really good question. I think on my my father's side, it was. I think on both sides, to be honest, it was very vaguely Christian. Um, my, my grandfather was always a very independently minded person. My, my dad's dad, my, my paternal grandfather was always a very independently minded person. Um, so I, I don't think that, uh, any particular religious community played a deep role in his life. I think Mormonism was actually probably the first one and the same with my grandmother, of course, his wife. Um, and on my, my mother's side, I don't think, I don't think either of my grandparents were, uh, terribly religious at all. They came from they came from some pretty rough homes as well that uh, there wasn't a whole lot of, which isn't to say that, you know, if there was religion there that it would have been necessarily stable, but uh, it, it was definitely not um, a big part of their lives, I think. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, and so you, you are raised in a typical LDS home uh, in, in Texas in the middle of the Bible belt, um, but you're, oh, yes. you're baptized at the age of eight, correct? Mm -hmm. And yep. um Tell me a little bit about your interaction growing up okay. in the Bible Belt and yes. LDS. <laughs> in the uh, literal Texas-shaped buckle of the Bible Belt. Um, yeah, I, so I, I, like you said, I grew up in a very typical Mormon family. You know, I was baptized at eight, ordained to the Aaronic priesthood at 12, ordained to the um, Melchizedek priesthood at 18. Uh, and so it was a fairly typical like Mormon upbringing in that sense, but, you know, being in, in the Bible belt, there's a lot of, there's a lot of evangelical presence. There's a lot of generally um, mainline Christian presence. You'd probably have a better idea about like particular um, associations and denominations and traditions than I do personally. But I, I do remember a number of churches that were uh, self-described non-denominational quote unquote Bible believing that were very, not quite when I was older, but when I was much, much younger, they were much more insistent upon like uh, anti-Mormon classes, essentially, like how to convert your Mormon friends, how to like the, the differences between Mormonism and the Bible and, you know, kind of just God makers level schlock like that sometimes. Um, other than that, like when I was, like I said, though, when I was growing up, it had kind of, I think it had kind of died down. I think people were less afraid of the Mormons and just more, uh, you know, in a, a weird kind of tension with them. I will say there was one moment when I was in high school when the church that I went to was vandalized pretty severely. That was that was an interestingly distinct memory. I, I still hold on to that quite a bit. They 
we don't know who it was. I don't think the police ever found anyone, but they they broke the windows. They spray paint. I think they I think they took a couple things from inside, but it was mostly external damage. They broke the windows. They spray painted the walls with you know profanity and stuff like that, and some stuff that made it pretty clear that they knew like this was a Mormon church, um, things like that. And uh, it, the the damage in some cases was so severe that like they had to put up trees and stuff in front of walls because like sandblasting wasn't taking the graffiti off. So it's still there, in fact, uh, at least faded. But yeah, it's um, it was interesting because that was definitely not the norm. I usually just ha had uh, friends who were maybe passive aggressively religious, but never like up in my face. I although I will say when I when I was growing up, I was about um, th there's a little memory here that uh, I had a really good friend growing up who was Baptist. Uh, his his parents were very Baptist, let's say, uh, like, come come on, uh, bring the missionaries over. We'd love to talk to them, get that kind of level of Baptist. Um, and I remember when I was baptized at eight, pretty shortly thereafter, my friend who was just a little bit older than I was, I guess he had gotten freshly you know, taught uh, about what my Mormon baptism was, um, at least from their perspective. And he had this very frank, or as frank as like an eight or a nine-year-old uh, could have a discussion um, about how worried he was about my soul and how much he wanted me to invite Jesus into my heart. And I remember <laughs> sitting in the backyard and he's like, we, we need to have a prayer right now for you to invite Jesus into your heart. I was like, oh, okay, I mean, I like Jesus, okay. So we just sat there in silence for like 30 seconds. And I'm like, I'm silently praying. Like, I feel like I'm kind of in, but like, if you're not in here, Jesus, you know, come on in. <laughs> it was, so it was experiences like that. You know, it's, I think that neither of us, neither group really knew what to make of the other, but there's just those longstanding prejudices. There's the, there's the classic Mormon persecution complex. And then there's of course the, uh, the Mormons are out to get you kind of complex on the other side. And that was about the extent of it. Boy, I'll tell you what, um, just so you know, Nathan, I would have been that eight-year-old boy that would have been. <laughs> That's all right. I had my own, uh, I had my own little idiosyncrasies, let's say. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh yeah, I could so see me at the age of eight doing something like that. <laughs> so, um, you know, so you're growing up in the Bible Belt and um, as you're getting older, um, now you're obviously very inquisitive, very smart kid and so you uh, probably at this time you know you're, you're probably learning a lot of things you're hearing a lot of things um tell me about your engagement with your faith and how maybe how you re started running into some issues that caused you to have maybe what you could call somewhat of a faith crisis absolutely um so for me uh for a long time my you know mormonism for me was just kind of like the water i swam in it wasn't something i noticed it was just something i was in um but when i was 13 I'm not 100% sure what triggered it. It may be just, like you said, because I'm kind of by nature, I like to ask questions and explore stuff. So nothing quite remains unexplored for long in my life. Um, but when I was 13, I started really digging into Mormonism, um, at least as best as a 13-year-old really could. Uh, so at that time, it was like, I'm reading Cleon Skousen, his uh, first 2,000 years, third thousand years, things like that. And, and if anyone's unfamiliar with Cleon Skousen, he was like a California highway patrolman turned Mormon theologian, essentially. Um, since we don't have like professionally trained theologians, you know, you get what you get. And Skousen was um, probably much more fundamentalist than even like 13 year old me was interested in, but I did feel very initiated 
let's say, for uh, being able to have this like lengthy documentary history of like the Hebrew Bible plus the you know uniquely Mormon expansions on those narratives and feeling like I was you know getting into this um, not only like common narrative that my church held but almost like not secret details but almost privileged details of someone who would only uh, who had uh, you know studied the scriptures so lengthy as Brother Skousen had uh, could give and you know not to not to give any disrespect there I just I'm not a very big Skousen fan today but um when I was 16, though, after, you know, a couple of years of, of exploring Mormonism, I started to uh, experience the, the beginnings of what essentially became like a faith crisis. For me, the two biggest issues that I kept running into were uh, atonement theology, uh, particular interpretations of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus uh, and Mormon exclusivism. So rhetoric like the only true and living church. Uh, the the authority the priesthood authority that others were lacking things like that um the sense that i was authorized by virtue of being a mormon to do something that someone like yourself steve was not authorized to do if uh even if you were doing the exact same thing as i was so something about that really bothered me i i think that there might be a bit of uh just a natural consequence of growing up in austin where it's just like in high school for instance i i would have these lengthy conversations with my like atheist Buddhist friend who had dual citizenship with France and my like very fundamentalist Christian friend. And I'm, you know, I'm the Mormon in the middle of those two. And, you know, it's, it's, I was always exposed to a wide range of thoughts and, and people. So it was, it just wasn't tenable to me, the, especially the Mormon exclusivism. And then the uh, atonement theory stuff, I, I was running into, for, for those who are unfamiliar, like a very, very brief aside, there's a long history of different interpretations of what Jesus's life, death, and resurrection mean. Like, what, what do they save us from? What do they save us for? How do they actually save us? That sort of thing. And the one that I inherited was uh, called penal substitution theory, which to me, even now seems fairly uh, barbaric, legalistic, bureaucratic, things like that. Um, but because we didn't realize we were dealing with interpretations rather than just the atonement of Jesus Christ, it made conversations like that very difficult to have. Um, we lacked language to really articulate even the issues that I was facing, hence kind of going back to how Mormonism was just sort of the water I swam in. There was no intricate detail there. Um, so 16 was, was when I started hitting these, these questions and these crises. And um, I got pretty diverse in how I wanted to address those things. I found that like, I, I started reading N.T. Wright who to this day is still one actually one of my favorite theologians. I, there's disagreements today between him and me for sure, but uh, I'm sure he'll he'll go on somehow. Um, but uh, in the course of that, I ran into like, uh, I think probably Terrell Givens pretty early on, Terrell and Fiona Givens. I, I was seeing Terrell Givens' talks at that time. It was just like PDFs he would upload on his website and stuff. And um, But eventually I ended up running into a group called FAIR, um, that uh, really interested me because they had two websites at the time, one, and I think they still do. One of them was for like, they would do a, an annual conference and they would put the presentations up on this particular website. And they also had uh, like books for free online on that website, similar to how the Maxwell Institute used to do with like Hugh Nibley's work and stuff like that. Um, and they also had a second website that was more like Wikipedia, but for like particular questions and concerns and criticisms about Mormonism and uh, specifically about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
And I, I remember just pouring over those pages because I, I felt like for the first time in a very long while, or well, I guess for the first time at all, I ran into a group of people who were not only asking similar questions to what I was, but who had this profound amount of information, at least relative to what I had at the time, um, and who were, you know, seeking answers to these really interesting questions. So I noticed they had this option where you could um, start emailing in questions. So like if, if I couldn't find something on their Wikipedia page um, or the, their quasi wiki kind of page, um, but I was still interested, I could, I could email in a question and people would uh, respond to me. And uh, I, I just was really taken with those resources. It was a, it was a big, feature of what sort of got me started, not only thinking critically about my religion, but um, I guess kind of personally developing. Yeah, so you um, then are um, starting to engage uh, this and get in get these various, you know, asking questions and getting answers and stuff like that. And then uh, you actually start transitioning to become uh, a volunteer apologist for them, correct? Yes. So uh, I so I was so taken with the email function, I actually ended up asking a few questions, but I was so taken with it and I was so impressed with the answers that I was receiving that um, I, I found this application process on their uh, their website. And so I, I when I was 18, so sometime around December 2011, I ended up uh, applying to become one of those uh, volunteer apologists who would answer uh, emails uh, that were sent in. So I, I sent in the application. Uh, I actually did it twice, one, once when I was 17, but that one was lost, I guess, because they, they changed people who were overseeing that function. Uh, good old Mormon bureaucracy, you know. Um, but uh, the second time I sent it in, I was approved. And like the next day, I woke up to about like 100 emails in my inbox. Because what you receive is not just the emails that people send in, but there's a it's a private email list of um, other volunteer apologists who they they send you, you get their answers to people's questions as well, and there's internal discussion as well, um, especially if there's like maybe harder questions or maybe the person that's uh, you know writing in isn't maybe being necessarily as clear as they could be. So there's discussion about you know what their concern might be, what resources you could probably use or recommend to them um things maybe like maybe you might not be familiar with this or that source or something so here here's a suggestion um or i'm going to jump in and i'm going to i'm going to offer this real quick it was it was really interesting because i think that was the first time i actually had a community of people who wanted to think critically about mormonism uh in a way that you know was meaningful and allowed them to remain within the lds church of course but they, you know, they, they wanted to engage it creatively and uh, intellectually. And that was something that really appealed to me because it, it not only gave me this sense that the questions that I was asking starting at like age 16, like the more pressing questions uh, could have answers, but that, uh, that there was a sense of community that I could develop. Because um, I suppose on a personal note, I, I always had a very hard time uh, connecting with the the kids in my age group at church. I some of my closest friends to this day, for, even from high school, are uh, actually all non-Mormon. It was it was the Mormon kids that I actually had the hardest time connecting to. And uh, I I don't know, man. I was I was a bookish, introspective kid who also was like 
never quite very good at being traditionally Mormon, no matter what I did. So, you know, the non-Mormon kids were always my favorites, I guess. But I, I started finding community with FAIR. And uh, I, I, I made a lot of really great friends, really kind and smart people who took me under their wing, people who are still fairly big names uh, in, in FAIR today. FAIR, you know, when I was there, they, they changed their name to FAIR Mormon. And of course, as, as certain Latter-day Saints and Mormons will know, they, uh, they changed their name to FAIR Latter-day Saints recently. So, um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I got to meet some really wonderful people. It, got me connected to a number of wonderful resources and it uh it helped me to start to develop a mormonism of my own essentially or rather to make mormonism my own rather than just being the religion i inherited from my parents and my family and the water that i was swimming in i felt like i was being more deliberately mormon and that was uh, that was something special for me so I'm thinking of another time when B.H. Roberts is getting this letter from a faithful member about this guy who had some questions about the Book of Mormon. And I just, when you read the studies of the Book of Mormon, you have this kind of insider view of, he writes a letter back and says, oh, everything's okay, this is fine. But in the background, we have like, we got a problem, NASA, we got a problem yeah, here. Yeah. And <laughs> it does the whole stuff. I mean, you get to read the transcripts that he gave to the, to the general authorities and first presidency. Mm -hmm. And uh, let me ask you, did you ever get questions where your group would be communicating with each other, collaborating, and you're all like, okay, well, here's the response we're going to send them, but NASA or Houston, we have a problem here. Uh, I, I'm not sure if there was any question that ever like sent us for a loop, like too badly, but there were questions that got us debating internally. Um, which was actually really good for me to see personally, because it, it helped me to see something that, uh, well, to be frank, I've, I've seen a lot of people deny at times, and not, not, not everyone, but sometimes they deny that there's this, that there's not unanimity in Mormonism. And by Mormonism, I, I mean specifically the LDS church. Um, but it was, it was so interesting to see that there was like such impassioned disagreement on subjects like, like big subjects like polygamy, or uh, subjects that may seem tedious uh, on the surface, like progression between kingdoms, but that connected really closely to concepts like priesthood authority and how we conceptualize salvation. Uh, I remember getting into it a few times with uh, a couple members about um, uh, New Testament textual criticism. I, I was the kid who who knew that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John weren't written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and not everybody seemed to uh, love that idea. Uh, but it's it's uh, it was interesting because it was very it was a very team uh, team oriented effort, kind of naturally. There was there was never like a deliberate moment when we were like, okay, we gotta we gotta stick together, we gotta be unanimous, we gotta give the 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 proper answer. It was always. Um, surprisingly mutually supportive and maybe that was because we had the distance of email and not like face-to-face -face conversation where a lot more emotion probably would come out but um something i actually really respected and appreciated about how fair did their uh their email list was that every email response that we gave so every question we received every response we made to that question would be prefaced by some variation on something like this like uh, hi, my name is Nathan Smith. I'm a volunteer apologist for FAIR. And uh, 
what I'm going to share with you is not necessarily, does not necessarily reflect the official position of Fair Mormon or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then you, you give your perspective. So it was interesting because it gave you breathing room to speak honestly and, and um, from your own unique perspective without necessarily getting that blowback to fall back onto the LDS church or on FAIR itself. Um, it, was, uh, it was just kind of impressive. I, I, think the, I think the thing too is that FAIR, FAIR existed in an era of Mormon history and like the history of Mormon thought when we've had a lot of time to ask the questions that B.H. Roberts had never heard before essentially, you know, so we had the benefit of like decades and decades of, of like, we were post Hugh Nibley and uh, post like uh, every, every Mormon on some level and especially like Mormon boys and philosophy majors and stuff like that wants to be the next Hugh Nibley or the next B.H. Roberts. So we've never been hurting for answers and sometimes maybe rationalizations for this or that particular idea or, uh, responses to this or that particular criticism. So I think I was spoiled in the sense that I, I, I grew up um, in an era when we had at least responses and detailed responses at that. So uh, this is very interesting. So like if you were to write that letter, hey, it's Nathan Smith, I'm just giving you my opinion. Did that letter have to be vetted or did you have the freedom just to send that letter out, uh, that email out? Uh, I, it, was, it was very much a system of ask for forgiveness and not permission. Um, I think the, because we went through an application process, we were probably already kind of pre-vetted in that sense. Um, you know, being a professional organization, um, they, they certainly don't want just, not to toot my own horn, but they don't want just anyone sending out emails, you know what I mean? Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think there, I was never like reprimanded or censured or anything like that. And I, I got pretty liberal toward the end. Um, I was even kind of a closet atheist at one point, <laughs> but uh, I didn't mention that until uh, I, after I left Fair Mormon for my mission. <laughs> but uh, but uh, it was it was never, for me, it was never a problem, which was nice. But um, yeah, I, I, I never really had a run-in with anyone. Everyone was so, so very, like, weirdly understanding of one another. We could still have really passionate and sometimes even not venomous, but very, like, very passionate disagreements. But uh, no one ever, like, it was very, very rare to have someone who either tried to, like, publicly censure you, publicly, like, as in within the email list itself. Um, and it never, never seemed to come from, like, the official side of things. And I think in large part because there was that pressure valve of beginning every email with, like, hey, this is my view. It doesn't necessarily... Uh, come out as like fair's view or the LDS church's position. So just a heads up there. So they could kind of disown us if they had to, I'm sure. So <laughs> I, I got to explore this closet atheism while you're still uh, at mm -hmm. Fair Mormon, but um, <laughs> just a couple things I want to touch before we talk about that is what is the, what come, what is the most interesting question you're ever asked? Oh, that's a great question. Um, oh, I'm, I feel like I'm recovering memories in the clinic right now. <laughs> um, I got to say the weirdest question was um, someone emailed in saying their seminary teacher had taught them that God has a pet lion. And I think that was the day my faith died. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. No, but uh, so they, they, 
Yeah, they, they were told, and I'm not sure like this person's background or age, if they were like a high school student or something like that, but um, they said their seminary teacher told them that God has, has a pet lion. And for the life of us, we could not figure out like even how that folklore would come about. Like there's, there's one thing where it's like, okay, well maybe they're going like to the book of Revelation. Maybe that mentions a, like an animal or something. Like maybe he's trying to pull from that or something. But like, we couldn't even find like a misinterpreted like verse or firsthand source from early Mormon documents or anything that would even like lead to the inkling that God just has a pet lion. Like he's a cartoon character from an eighties like TV show or something, you know? Um, so that was one, I, I think the, the ones that interested me the most though were the ones that like that had to do with like translation theory usually with the book of mormon so like trying to find uh clearer ways of accommodating um modern scholarship perceived anachronisms in the text of the book of mormon with like devotional readings so we would um at the time for instance my favorite theory of book of mormon interpretation was actually blake osler's um concept of a the book of mormon as a modern expansion of an ancient text this idea that uh joseph smith in producing the book of mormon engaged it more as like an interpreter and a commentator even than just like a strict one-to-one -one translator and of course i you know I, in high school i did like four years worth of latin class and i that alone showed me there's no such thing as a one-to-one -one translation at all anyway and then you combine that with the fact that in fair to this, I'm pretty sure to this day, um, but especially back when I was there, you know, we, we favored a Mesoamerican uh, geography for the Book of Mormon. So um, John Sorensen and, and related scholars like that. Um, and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't necessarily like an official position by any means, but it was very much the popular view. Um, but that came with some interesting little details like um, Brent Gardner was a, is, is a Mesoamericanist and uh, he, he would write these interesting like talks and presentations about like the, the Popol Vuh, which is a, a Mayan text, if, I, if I'm correct. And it's, it's written in an iconographic language. The, 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 the text is like pictures. It's not like how we do in English, for instance, where it's all phonetic, um, where the letters and the words themselves don't necessarily depict something that's what they sound out to. Um, and so he, you know, he would he would give these interesting examples of like how on how on earth do you translate something like like the Popol Vuh, an iconographic text, into English text? And uh, you know, it gave me this idea of like how fluid translation could really be. Anyway, I'm getting into the weeds, but I think the thing that that fascinated me the most was was definitely translation because I, I think that appealed to me personally as someone who was trying to creatively engage Mormonism the idea of Joseph Smith creatively engaging the gold plates was very uh very inviting to me so um what did so now you would also probably have questions from people who um, maybe are having a real crisis of faith and maybe you could by reading the letter maybe felt like it maybe pulled at you or affected you do you have some examples of that? Um, the one that there was one that really affected me because I, you know, I was I was an eighteen year old boy. I was just in in uh, especially after mid two thousand twelve. I was just fresh out of high school. So um, there was this one guy. the The question itself wasn't even really that big. It was just kind of like very 
vague concerns about plural marriage, like early Mormon polygamy. Um, so there was no, there was, there were no particular like, like questions or concerns. It was more just like, why did they do this kind of thing? And, uh, you know, and, and that's, that's not at all to imply that those are invalid questions by any means. It was just, it was that it was difficult to address those concerns when they were, they were moral objections rather than like intellectual queries. Because if, if it's, um, if it's a question about like, again, like translation stuff or like anachronisms, then, you know, we can point you in like particular directions of like certain primary sources, or we can give you like the latest uh, theory as to how translation works, but I can't really theorize without on some level rationalizing um, about your moral objections. And so this, this man and I went back and forth in email and I was, I was very liberal with him about this. So I was like, I, hey, I, I understand like this is, this is something that troubles me too. Like I, I hope you can find answers that work for you. But he was so insistent that I was just trying to give him like fairs answers, and I, it, which was so strange to me because I hadn't given him any answers. Actually, it was probably profoundly unhelpful in that regard. But um, I tried to be very empathetic. Like that's always something that I feel like I've tried to do, which is like when I when I feel like I don't have an answer for you, at the very least, I'd like to show that like that's a good question, and I'm I'm right there with you, like just as confused and the like. But the, the exchange we had ended with him essentially saying, I'm leaving the church. Um, and my 18-year-old brain was, even as a very liberal Mormon at the time, my 18-year-old brain was very affected by that because I felt responsible on some level because, you know, I'm the, I'm the apologist. I'm supposed to have the answer, or at least I'm supposed to show you that there's, there's the possibility of a faithful answer. And... Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that was probably my first concrete connection with uh, you can't save everyone. Mm. <laughs> um, but uh, it was it was a confusing experience for sure, but I think a formative one as well. So <clears throat> you said towards the end you got more liberal and became a closet atheist. Did you really lose your faith because of God's pet lion? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I don't think the pet lion did me in, but it really came close, let's say. <laughs> um, uh, so in, in my time with FAIR, I, I, like I said, I became much more liberally Mormon. And uh, there's, a, there's an abiding concern when it comes to liberal religion. And while I don't share the concern, I understand it, um, which is that conservative, high-demand religions usually evoke a lot of devotion from the people who stick around. Whereas liberal religions have this way of sort of rendering themselves on some level irrelevant. That's the concern at least. So there's like a joke, for instance, like um, the Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, are obviously very impassioned when it comes to like missionary work. Whereas you get the um, like Unitarians who are, who are very open to everyone and everything and, and, and in a good way. And I mean that in the, as a positive, um, but there's a joke I once heard of, you know, what do you get when you cross a, a Jehovah's Witness with a Unitarian? You get someone who's always knocking at your door for no purpose in particular, you know? So um, I think that for me, the, the fact that I became so liberal, I sort of liberalized my way out of God, if that makes sense. And um, I, again, I don't even necessarily mean that as a negative observation, just more like a neutral observation of where I was at. 
I, I was very interested in Terrell Givens um, and, and Terrell and Fiona Givens. I, I think The God Who Weeps came out in 2012 and that was kind of like my creed for a very long time. I, th I think it's still a very good book. Um, but I was also very much into Bart Ehrman. And uh, you know, it, anyone who's unfamiliar with Bart Ehrman, he's a New Testament textual critic um, and critic again in a neutral sense and an academic sense in that he analyzes the text of the New Testament on a, a historical and a theological basis. And one of the things that Ehrman is very well known for is that he's, he's done a lot of historical Jesus scholarship. He's done a lot of um, contextualizing, historically contextualizing the New Testament texts and the texts of a similar era that didn't make it into the New Testament canon that we have today. And uh, I, really had a hard time not thinking that Jesus was sort of a, an apocalyptic prophet of his time that, you know, whose, whose predictions kind of didn't happen, but we can still find meaning in them and, and make good out of them. And I still believe that today that, you know, that you can make meaning and, and goodness out of a Christianity like that, even if I, I don't necessarily share that Christianity. Um, but I, I guess it was a perfect storm of, I, uh, I was engaging historical scholarship on Mormon history and Christian history, or at least the history of thought in Christianity and Mormonism in particular, that uh, sort of just left me feeling like all the old rigid categories that I used to think in of, uh, of a God who inspires prophets and apostles and who comes to you in visions and who resurrects the dead and multiplies the, the loaves and the fishes those fell apart and I didn't really have an alternative. And so for a moment there, I was just kind of an atheist. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. As much as, as much of an intellectual atheist as an 18 year old boy can be, let's say. <laughs> so at that point you, you're going through a phase, right? <laughs> hmm. That's a great way to put it actually. Um, <laughs> I was, I was in a phase and it was, um, there's, there's a big theme in like, in Wittgenstein's work that like you you can't enter the world for which you don't have language. And I found that I was exiting a world of, of uh, fairly traditional Latter-day Saint belief. And I, I didn't have a world to enter after that. I lacked the language, um, especially when the more traditional language for me at least started to break down. I just, I didn't have an alternative. And so I had nothing. And so I said nothing. And for, for me, that took the form of, um, at least in a closeted way, identifying as atheistic. So now you, so the, the, you, you're, you're leaving Fair Mormon because at this point you're going to now go on your mission, yes. right? Now you were, was 18, right? When you were, or was 19, it 19? Actually. Okay, so that was yeah. before the cutoff. Okay, so <clears throat> you're 19 years old now. Did you start college at this point at, at the no. age of 18? No, okay, you, I was still at home for that year. So okay. the, the plan was, um, the plan was always I was going to graduate high school and then spend that year at home, like getting money together, things like that, preparing for a mission because I knew I wanted to serve a mission. Um, and when I went, the age change had already occurred, but I knew for me personally, I wanted to wait till I was 19. I didn't want to go at 18. Um, Oh goodness, that would have been that would have been really bad if I went at eighteen. I would. I don't think any eighteen-year-old, especially an eighteen-year-old boy, is ready for the mission field, much less just like leaving their home at all. But um, so for me, uh, in that year between high school finishing and going on my mission, I actually uh, became very close friends with the missionaries in my my local area, my ward, the uh, the local congregation that I was attending as a kid, and uh, like 
every day, virtually every day, all day, I would go out with them. Um, and we would, we would go knocking on doors and we, I would be there for lessons. And I liked it. I loved it. Uh, I, was, I was very close friends with them. And uh, we would have these deep, in-depth conversations about all the stuff that I was learning as like an apologist for FAIR and as just like in my own private research. Um, and we would, we would have questions about like the concerns that they often get, you know, missionaries, they, they get concerns and questions and sometimes they also get the low hanging fruit criticisms as well. Um, and so we would talk about that, but we would, uh, you know, I was, I was their, their apologist, but they were also, you know, we were also friends and, um, that was really, really formative for me. It made me want to be a missionary. I, I knew one missionary in particular and several of his trainees, because that was kind of the deal. He, he would stay here in my area and he would just get, keep getting new trainees and we would always be friends. Um, you know, nice, fresh, new missionary minds to mold in my image, I guess. But uh, I, it, was, it was something that was really deeply impactful for me because it, it not only gave me this idea, again, that I could have community in meaningful parts of the LDS church, like the mission program, um, but that I had something valuable to offer. So uh, when, I was, when I was getting ready for my mission, again, I was actually very, very into N.T. Wright. And one of the big things about N.T. Wright was he sees the book of Acts as this very, um, this very archetypal image of how the Christian life and Christian history works, where, you know, you, you get Luke uh, ending with, uh, with Jesus, and I think Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus, but it, it starts with Pentecost, where these, these uh, disciples freshly left on their own suddenly begin to speak in tongues and break down these barriers between people. They're creating a community that didn't exist there. They're creating relationships and connections that weren't weren't there before and that, that were blocked by artificial barriers like something as simple as language um, and acts progresses with the spread of the, these Christian communities and sort of hits this climax with Paul in Rome um, preaching essentially under the nose of the emperor himself that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not and uh, then it ends open-endedly like there's no ending to acts and N.T. Wright takes this, this interpretation that that's probably because you are the next chapter to acts. You're the expansion of the Christian community. You're the, the carrying on of this kingdom that has just arrived on earth as it is in heaven. And I was really taken with that. And especially with my experiences with missionaries, my very good friends, some of my best friends at that time in my life, and uh, my experiences with Fair Mormon, and the warm ways that both groups really received me, I, I wanted to be a missionary. So I signed up um, in February. I believe I received my mission call in February. Uh, and then in March of 2013, I, I went to the missionary training center. And then after that, after two weeks at the MTC, I was shipped off to the California Fresno mission, which at the time covered the San Joaquin Valley. So generally speaking, uh, Central California. It's been split since I left, but uh, that was my area for two years. So you would, would you, so now you, you went through your atheist phase, you would consider yourself mm -hmm. no longer an atheist, but you would consider yourself a, a more of a liberal Mormon at this time as you're about ready to enter the mission field? Yes, I, okay. um, I would say I was, I felt useful as a liberal Mormon. Uh, I felt like I belonged as a liberal Mormon, and I, I felt um, 
I lived in a meaningful world when I was a liberal Mormon. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's kind of where I was. Um, a quick and dirty way of putting it is probably I was a Terrell Fiona Givens kind of kind of Mormon at the time. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. Um, you know, I, I I think back to my friend Rick Bennett, who um, he was talking to Terrell, and he had mentioned about it's okay to have a progressive ideas, or we can engage the faith in a, in a different way. And so um, Rick's told this story before, uh, so I feel comfortable. And he just told it to me when I was, well, I was at his home in his studio and he showed me this parallel Bible that he had. And he said, I did Sunday school and I, I, I used the parallel Bible um, and quoted from a different version. And I think he said within two weeks, he was off, uh, it was no longer teaching Sunday school. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, that's... Um... Oh, buckle up, Steve, because <laughs> uh, the mission wasn't great for me. <laughs> let's let's just put it that way. I, I my heart goes out to Rick yeah. for that kind of thing. I I think that um, it's hard to reduce Mormonism to a like a one liner that you could sew into a pillow and toss on your couch. But I think that uh, there is a beautiful progressive potentiality in Mormonism, and you see it a lot. I thought I think I experienced it to a very healthy degree with my experiences with FAIR and um, with my experiences with other missionaries, uh, or rather with the missionaries that were in my hometown. Um, and then there's a there's a harder side to Mormonism. There's a more rigid side. Uh, there's a stonier side, I think. And the technical term would be like a lowercase f fundamentalism. So if I use that term, by the way, fundamentalism, I'm specifically referring to people that I personally considered to be pathologically dogmatic, um, specifically as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I wanna be sure that, that there's no confusion about fundamentalist Mormon sects that perhaps practice polygamy or believe in an out-of-God teachings and the like. Um, so when I, when I went into the mission field in March of 2013, I encountered a lot of fundamentalism. And I think that uh, while, I, while I detest it, I think I can understand why there would be a lot of fundamentalism in the mission program, which is to say that it's it's the easiest religion to sell. It's it's um, it's all or nothing. It's very emotionally engaged. It's high stakes. It's high demands, and in some cases, it's even high rewards. And uh, I so I encountered a lot of fundamentalism in the form of kids who were my age who did not have the background that I did. So I, like I said before, Mormonism, I grew up with Mormonism sort of being the water in which I swam and that was how unconscious it was to me. And I ended up meeting a lot of kids I think who never sort of realized that they were swimming, which isn't to say that, you know, I was so much smarter or anything like that, or, you know, I was more spiritual or I was sorrier for my sins than they were or anything like that. But, um, I, I certainly was reflecting and on and exploring Mormonism above the average level. There, there weren't a lot of 18 year olds who were doing like fair Mormon stuff. And if they were going out with their missionaries every day, it wasn't because they were their private, you know, theologian and historian. It was because they were prepping for the mission, you know? So, um, like right off the bat, when I when I went to the MTC, I experienced a lot of homesickness. And then a lot of that was, I think, rooted in the fact that I got blindsided pretty quickly 
between my expectations of what the mission field was going to be like and what the lived reality was. I remember, uh, gosh, I remember in the in the way that only a 19-year-old boy with maybe minimal social skills can really do, getting into an argument with his sister missionary over um, over the dumbest little phrase in scripture. In the, it, well, and not that the, the phrase itself is dumb, but just that we zeroed in so hard on one singular sentence that uh, it just was not an argument worth having. But it was it was basically about like, I think it was about the spirit and who can feel the spirit and to what degree people can feel the spirit outside of confirmation in the LDS church. So, you know, in, in the LDS church, the first ritual you undergo is baptism uh, by immersion into water. And the second is confirmation for the receipt of the gift of the Holy Ghost. And uh, part of the language that surrounds that is, is, is uh, that you have the Holy Ghost to be with you always uh, when you're confirmed a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And uh, there's various ways of interpreting that. This young woman had interpreted it as a way of saying that Mormons essentially have the Holy Ghost. Others have brushes with the Holy Ghost, but not really the Holy Ghost itself, or maybe they have a bit of light of Christ. And anyway, long story short, I ran into a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of legalism, a lot of the themes that have been constant thorns in my flesh when it comes to Mormonism ever since. And even before, but I didn't expect to encounter them not only to this degree, but in like authority figures, like my instructors at the MTC. And when I entered the field, my district leaders, my zone leaders, my APs, my presidents, it was, um, it was a very hard time. So the mission, the, the, the MTC was mostly just homesickness, but it was really when I got to the mission field that things sort of took off real hard, real fast. Um, it's hard to summarize, but basically very early on, I made in retrospect what probably was the mistake of honestly expressing myself on theology. So I was, I was the liberal Mormon. And part of being the liberal Mormon was I had a liberal view of ordinances among a bunch of salesmen who specialized in selling ordinances. And that didn't go over great. Uh, I, I was in a mission that was very emphatic that as, as missionaries, our purpose is to baptize. Like that's our, our deal. That's why we're paying, I think it was 450 a month at the time. Um, you know, th that's why we're here. That's why we sacrificed. That's why some of our families don't talk to us anymore. That's why we aren't going to college. It's to baptize. And here comes Elder Smith with his big brain swinging telling us about how you don't really need baptism to get to the celestial kingdom or it's symbolic or metaphorical. What's that? So I very quickly became the subject of rumors that I didn't have a testimony. I was, uh, you know, a quote unquote liberal in the very pejorative sense, the very post Reagan, very post Ezra Taft Benson uh, pejorative sense of that term. Uh, Gosh, at one point I was referred to as a cancer to areas, which was a splendid thing to learn about after my mission. But um, yeah, that was that was the cause of a lot of, not exclusively every, but a lot of the problems that I ended up experiencing in the mission field was just this constant clash between what I felt was this free religion of personal experience versus what a lot of missionaries pitched as 
the one true authority structure that was going to save you from the suffering of your life. You know, um, you had two separate mission presidents and uh, I want to do a little compare and contrast. I want you to tell us about how with your first mission president, you actually got along with very well, a real, yes. uh, actually pretty well-known um, individual. And uh, you can get into that however you want, but um, you had mentioned that he was giving an address to the group of missionaries and he had made a comment and you actually sent him a little note of um, just like a, a, a gentle correction, if you will, or a, a word of advice to him. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, my first mission president was a man named Larry Gelwicks. And Larry Gelwicks, for anyone who doesn't know, is a very famous uh, high school rugby coach. He coached the Highland rugby team in Utah. And uh, he's been like internationally recognized. He's, he's very accomplished in that, in that sport. And uh, other than that, he's also a well-accomplished uh, travel, travel agent, I think. He, he has like his own travel agency. The Getaway Guru is, uh, is his nickname. But he was, he was a very sweet man. I think that um, years and years and years of working with high schoolers sort of gave him a, a sixth sense for how to deal with us as you know, 19 to 20-something-year-old kids. And uh, which isn't to say he was perfect. You know, he was, he was very much a coach. And, uh, you know, the bookish interest, uh, you know, introverted person that I was, was not always, you know, very well suited to, to that personality type. And he definitely had a type for district leaders and zone leaders and APs. It was usually the, the, uh, the more sporty kids, the more, uh, the, the kids who were good in hierarchy, who were good at taking directions. And I, I don't mean that in a negative light at all, just a purely neutral light. You know, different personalities have different leadership styles. Um, but uh, yeah, so the 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 story, the experience that I had with Larry that really, I think, was typical of who he was as a leader was that uh, he had this favorite thing he liked to do where uh, he would, you know, we, we had these regular meetings called zone conferences where a lot of the missionaries of the mission would get together and we would have um, presentations from other missionaries and usually from the mission presidents as well. And uh, he had this anecdote he'd like to share where uh, he said, he would say something like, um, he would talk about developing a more loving and intimate understanding of God. And he would describe God as like, uh, that, that many believe that God is this sort of distant, uh, apathetic, very like holier than thou judgmental cloud in the sky um and then he would add to the end of that like most of the christian world believes and uh i haven't grown up on non-mormon christian literature like nt wright again or like margaret barker although barker's a little bit fringier but uh you know or, or like bart ehrman or like i i knew enough to know that mormons had not invented the concept of a loving intimately involved god and um i had a we, we would have these regular interviews with our mission president um, and I, like one-on-one -on -one, face to face alone in the room with, with president Gelwicks. And this poor man had like over 300 missionaries to manage at one point. So he would be just like falling asleep mid meeting, not because he was like lazy about it or anything because he was just so exhausted. But um, I remember raising this with him saying that I, I feel like this, not only is this inaccurate, I feel like it kind of fosters an us against them mentality that I feel like our mission's already kind of suffering from. Um, like it turns our religion into a team sport. And uh, 
he said something to the effect of like, that's very interesting. I think I agree. I just need to think about this a little bit more. It's like, okay, fair enough. I didn't expect anything because at that point I was kind of desensitized to the fact that I was not going to have any poll as the liberal cancer of the mission. But um, I remember like the very next zone conference I was in uh, listening to him deliver this anecdote again. You know, he was talking about the, the, the distant God in the sky, apathetic, judgmental, doesn't care. Um, but he didn't say like most of the Christian world believes. He just contrasted it against um, what he wanted us to teach people, which was uh, that God is loving, caring, understanding, and intimately involved in your life and interested in your well-being and, um, and your flourishing. And I, I thought that was, um, that was something really special to me personally, because it was, it was an instance where, you know, I, I didn't have to rally and create this, um, like, petition to get the leadership to change. He was just a man who, you know, was trying to express himself in a way that his listeners, you know, gave feedback on and he heard the feedback and he changed. Um, I, actually, a related experience, kind of funny, actually. Um, he, uh, he was doing a, President Gelwicks was doing a, uh, an, another presentation at another zone conference. And he was very impassioned in like preaching, like straight preaching. And it was great. He was going great. And uh, he was, he was describing the crucifixion of Jesus. And he hit this climax where he shouted, they broke his legs. And one, one missionary, <laughs> one missionary, God bless his heart, just in the middle of this not fire and brimstone, but just the same energy kind of sermon. Raises his hand and says, they didn't break his legs. <laughs> President Gelwicks just looks at him and says, thank you. And he looks back up. They broke his legs! Even more impassioned. And he just, he kept going. He did his sermon and he did his thing and hit the, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen, kind of ending you'd expect. And um, I remember through the next presentation, I saw him on the side and like he was talking with missionaries and they were poking around the scriptures and he did this really sweet thing that he didn't have to do, which is that after that, that presentation in the interim, like after his sermon, essentially, he got up and he said, I looked it up. I looked at the gospel of John and I now understand that they did not in fact break Jesus's legs to ensure that he was dead. Um, I was like, that, that was very sweet to me. And I mean that like sincerely as like coming from a tradition that values admittedly dewy-eyed, but very strong leaders who are more or less always right, or at least always reliable. It was very humbling and heartwarming to see someone who could stand up in front of the people who he had very impassionedly like said, made a claim to and said, hey, I was wrong. Um, this is the correct thing. Uh, there you go, let's move on. Like that was, that was impressive to me. Hmm. Um, yeah. But uh, so to contrast that, though, I had um, so as you said, I had two mission presidents um, and my second mission president, he and I. Actually, I was not the only one who had this experience. I I've spoken to numerous people who held like leadership positions in my mission, including former assistants to the president, which is the highest position that a, uh, a male missionary can can hold in the mission field. Um, I say male because there's no concrete leadership positions for female missionaries at this time, unfortunately. Um, but he and I had a lot of conflicts 
And a lot of it centered on the way that Larry ran the mission like a dad talking to his kids. And this man ran the mission like a CEO who lived in a very hierarchical corporation. And uh, Steve, you may be probably a little bit more familiar with, with maybe corporate culture than I am personally. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm inexperienced in that mode. But my dad, uh, he, used to, he used to work for Dell. And he would tell these stories about like, I, I think he was in their marketing department. He would tell these stories about like a boss would make a blunder and you don't mention it. Like you don't talk about it. You just don't because like that's that's a great way to not not get fired, but certainly to get like, you know, screwed over in the company in every which way you possibly can after that. That's a great way to lose friends fast. Um, and that was kind of how the mission ran. And there was no getting in contact with this man. There was no personal interaction. There was only like two modes, either he was bloviating on religion, and I know that's kind of a rude way to put it, but he was either bloviating on the most fundamentalist form of Mormonism that his Utah Mormonism could give him, or he was rebuking you for something tedious or even something very debatable. Um, that, that was essentially the experience I had with this man. So contrast these experiences uh, that I had with Larry with, uh, with this story. I. Uh, I got, a, I got an email because we get a weekly email from the mission president. That's the norm. At least it was where I was at, um, where he would share these quotes from uh, like various general authorities, apostles, 70s, uh, usually apostles and, and presidents of the church um, that he really liked. And they were very us against them, typically. Um, and one of them was a, a, uh, a sermon that Jeffrey R. Holland, who's currently an apostle in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, uh, had given it. Brigham Young University in Provo, I believe, where he quoted, he, he was talking about the Godhead, which is Mormon parlance for essentially the Trinity. And, uh, you know, Mormons are tritheistic in the sense that we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost as separate and distinct beings, um, as opposed to classical Trinitarianism. And uh, Jeffrey R. Holland gave this, this sermon at BYU, this devotional on the Godhead, and he quoted Bruce R. McConkie, who's, uh, uh, he's passed away now, but he was an apostle as well. And um, Bruce R. McConkie's quote was something essentially to the effect that if you believe in cl classical Trinitarianism, you're deceived by Lucifer himself. Like this is, a, this is a tool that the devil himself uses to deceive the people. And for the life of me, I still can't see how classical Trinitarianism is that bad, <laughs> to be frank. Um, but uh, he was my, my second mission president was very taken with this quote and he shared it very widely. Um, I think he used it in his own conference or two as well. At least the ones that I attended. There, there are several that you don't necessarily attend because you're just in a different region of the mission. Um, but he shared it through the email. And so I, I wrote him a little private email. It was completely private. It wasn't like I was trying to make a show of it. It was the same thing with Larry that, you know, I, I had a concern about us against them mentalities. I tried to tailor it in a respectful way. And um, the response I got was, um, you know, Elder Smith, I hear you but we need to be obedient to the Lord's anointed and just all these, the, this, this long response about how I wasn't respecting authority. Um, and goodness, that wasn't even the worst email I received from him, but that was, that was an interesting set of experiences that really showed me the different styles of leadership within Mormonism, within the LDS church specifically, but also the, the ways in which we sort of 
there, there's a term in, in, in online Mormon circles called leader roulette, where you sort of, you know, like how Russian, with what Russian roulette, you pull the trigger, you get what you get. Um, in this case, you know, you go to a ward and you get what you get as far as leaders are concerned. So you might get the one who, you know, loves the fact that you're a liberal Mormon or even respects the fact that you're an atheist and you can still be the, the gospel doctrine instructor. Like, you know what you need to teach. Like, you know, the content, it's fine. Or you get the one who releases you because you have a parallel language Bible. Um, and uh, I, it reminds me of this bit in the Book of Mormon where they ended the era of the kings for the, the reign of the judges, where they sort of democratized their leadership style. And one of the reasons that they gave was, to this day, I find it fascinating, and I'm sure it really resonated with like antebellum American mentalities, was essentially this idea that like, look, when a king is a good guy, it works really, really well. Like he's got unilateral power to do all these good things. When he's a bad guy, you get King Noah, you get the kingdom collapsing into fire, into brimstone, the Lamanites are killing us. Like it's, it's this all or nothing mentality that when it goes right, it goes really well. And when it goes wrong, it goes horribly wrong. There's no like safety bar. There's no um, fallbacks or, or protocols you can fall back on to, to fix this. And um, these two mission presidents were very good examples, I think, of that. Larry Gelwicks was not a perfect man. He had his mistakes and, you know, I, I know them, but um, he was a good man. He, he sincerely wanted to connect with us. He wanted to be a good leader and it showed in his leadership. And my second mission president wanted to be respected and valorized and loved. And he made a cult. And uh, I don't mean to say by that, 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 I'm not at all trying to imply Mormonism as a culture. None of that nonsense. I think that um, Mormonism is not a cult. The LDS church is not a cult, if you ask me. Um, but I think that cults are defined by behaviors and um, mentalities. And I believe that this man had cultic behaviors and tried to cultivate those in impressionable young people in my mission. And uh, the result was, for me at least, the result was a lot of trauma. Um, and uh, for a lot of other kids too, it was a lot of trauma. I've spoken to people in private. Um, I've made good friends with certain missionaries that I never encountered during my mission at the time, but I've, I've made friends with them since then. And uh, they've opened up quite a bit with me about, um, and, and of course this remains anonymous, of course, but they've opened up quite a bit about the horrible things that they experienced just outright and bullying at times, or even just spiritual, emotional, and mental abuse. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was a formative set of experiences. I, I know that this is um, probably vague. So if, if anyone is interested, I, I write a lot on Medium. And Steve, maybe I can give you the link to this. Um, but I, I, I wrote a couple of years ago, a longer essay kind of documenting a number of specific experiences that I had. Um, so if anyone's interested, I, I am over on Medium, studionightflight.medium.com, and the uh, essay that I have in mind is, I think it's called Changes to the Mission Program of the LDS Church and My Mission Experiences, something like that. But I'll, I'll, I'll give you a link, Steve, um, just because there's a lot to share, and I'm happy to share whatever, like, in this particular context, just if I overlook something or if someone's kind of interested in, like, what does he mean by that? Like, that, that'll give a fuller idea. Good, good, excellent. Yeah, so um, 
you know, one of the reasons I uh, wanted to have you on because you you've kind of influenced me in I'm able to engage you. You know, a lot of my knowledge of Mormonism was very <clears throat> book knowledge, right? And then once I get the human element, and uh, just to give you people an idea, I mean, um, I, I'm having conversations like the one I'm having with Nathan um, with other LDS people as well. Nathan in particular, I've had by far the most, but it's my way of trying to get to know this world and, and, and the humanity part of it. And I just remember how um, I brought you up um, to Bruce Van Orman, retired BYU professor and uh, author of the book uh, about W.W. Uh, w. Phelps, which is his life's uh, work that he really was passionate about. And we were just having an off the record kind of conversation, which I like to do before I film a video and just kind of get to know each other. And I mentioned your story. And he told me, he said, that's my son. He said, same thing, same thing happened to my son. And uh, so when I had him on, I asked him before, I said, can we talk about your son? And, your, and, and, and he said, yes. And so we did. We had a really good conversation about um, you know, the bad mission experiences, how most of the time it isn't this, but when they're, but sometimes this does happen. And his son is in his forties, still experiences PTSD as a result of what happened on his mission. And I just remember when you and I, after you had watched it and you and I had one of our sessions, you said, uh, Steve, thank you for, um, I felt like I was heard. And so I, that meant a lot to me to understand that, oh, okay, like I wasn't thinking, like, but when you were able to help people, I guess, maybe feel like they've been heard, that, that really impacted me, Nathan. I, I'm, I'm grateful for that, because I'm, I'm grateful that you, um, that you were able to, to bring that into the discussion, too, because I, I, it's, um, <clears throat> it's difficult, because when I, when I came home from my mission, I came home with a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, a lot of anger, and I was I was very emotionally reactive, and I didn't have the language to describe why. Like I didn't know why. I knew that I had horrible experiences. I, I had even experienced suicidal ideation at one point toward the end of my mission. Um, I knew all that. I was there for it. I, I was very well aware of it, um, but I didn't have a way of conceptualizing it either psychologically or uh, religiously. And like I said before, you know, with, uh, with Wittgenstein's work, the idea is that, you know, you, that for which you don't have language, you don't experience, like you can't enter a world that you can't describe. And uh, so I was left in one of those, another one of those uh, interims, kind of similar to my, you know, atheist phase when I was a teenager, where I left one world and I didn't have another one waiting for me. Um, and uh, so it just, it, it moved me deeply that not only would you bring that up in your interview, but that, that Bruce could have a chance to talk a little bit about his son and about the very concrete and real and not necessarily happy ending style struggles that he had as an experience as a missionary, because I never heard any of that. The, the struggles you always hear about as, as missionaries are, the work is so hard, non-Mormons are so mean, like we were chased out of this town by a bunch of hillbillies and trucks, who were shooting at us because they loved Jesus and they hated Mormons. Um, I didn't have any of that. People were usually very cordial with me. And um, I did have a rifle pointed at my head at one point. That's a different story. A um, lot less dramatic than it actually sounds, by the way. It was, it was just something, something. Anyway, um, but uh, 
99.9% of the suffering that I experienced as a missionary was because of conflict between myself and other missionaries, including my mission president, my second mission president. And that emotionally devastated me and no one talked about it. Everyone, everyone was sorry, but no one understood. And so the, the, just to hear that story meant a lot to me. So thank you very much. Mm. Yeah, I uh, appreciate that, man. Um, yeah, so you basically um, experienced PTSD as a result of your, of your mission trip. And so what was, just kind of maybe detail, what was the, the process of you trying to bring healing and restoration into your life? And, and, and what kind of journey did you take in that regard? Well, um, it started with realizing that I, I, uh, I didn't have this, again, I didn't have the language for it until uh, much later, but sort of, I knew that something was wrong. Like, not just like, oh man, my mission was hard and now it's gone. It was, no, it was hard and it's still in my head and it's not getting out. Um, and the first experience that sort of tuned me into that was one of my first Sundays back home when I was in uh, a class. I don't think it exists anymore, but it was called Gospel Principles. And it was generally made for um, recent converts to the church and people who were uh, exploring the church for the first time. So it was meant to be a very like introductory course to Mormonism. Um, and so I went because I was the RM. I was the the returned missionary. Um, and uh, that's sort of where you go. And I, I remember sitting through the lesson and feeling all the same mix of boredom and frustration that I felt on my mission. And then these two elders came up to me and, and they, were, they were perfectly fine. They were nice. They were cordial. They were excited to meet an RM. And I remember having like a panic attack. Like the moment I saw them, I, my mind was flooded with defensive thoughts, um, certainty that these guys were jerks on some level, like, like, how are you going to try to screw me over now? Like that kind of thing. Um, and I, like, I couldn't, I could barely breathe. And I just sat through that conversation. My, I was with my dad, fortunately, and my dad's always a very, very gregarious person. So he shared the conversation where I just sort of sat in silence. And um, I knew that something was sort of wrong then. Um, and I, I, it, was, it was especially with elders. Weirdly enough, not with sister missionaries. And I think because I had very minimal interactions with sisters and they were never in leadership positions, um, at least leadership positions that affected me personally. And a lot of my conflicts came with mission leaders. So it was elders. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I started to recognize what I wouldn't have terms for until much later, which is that I, I had post-traumatic stress syndrome to some degree, at least, in that um, the traumatic experiences that I had uh, led to unprocessed emotions. And so when I encountered similar stimuli that I had encountered in my original traumatic experiences, in this case, elders, Mormon, Mormon missionaries, male Mormon missionaries, um, it triggered all of the emotions I had in the initial experiences um, that weren't being processed. They were just sort of free floating. Um, a bit of a bit of like therapeutic background. Uh, there's a there's a, goodness, sorry. I'm trying to distill this this thought. Um, you could think of memory as like a library in your head, and when you uh, when you go into deep sleep, for instance, at the end of a day, that's when you're taking the short term memories of your day and turning them into long term memories uh, that you can draw on like a month or a year or a decade later. Um, and, and you can think of it like 
when you go to sleep, you sit down and you're writing a book in your head. And then you finish writing that book and you put it on the bookshelf where it's supposed to go. A traumatic experience doesn't go so neatly. So a traumatic experience is kind of like a book that's been misplaced and it's not neatly placed. It's like the pages are crumpled. They're all like folded up. The book is crooked and it's just kind of jammed into the shelf there. And so when you encounter something that references or triggers a memory that uh, is neatly filed away on the bookshelf, you just pull out the book and you, you find the relevant page, proverbially speaking, metaphorically speaking, um, and then that's it and you put the book back. But when you find something that triggers a traumatic experience, you find that there's this crumpled book and like you don't know what to do with it. Your brain starts just like sort of spitting back out the same emotional responses you had at the beginning. Um, and I had a lot of crumpled books. And so uh, I, for a number of years, I sort of just tried to have to find narratives, for instance, that would help me make sense of why I had the mission experience that I did. So um, it started with finding narratives, just to kind of make sense of what had gone on, what had happened. Um, and one I actually really identified with was Hagar um, and Ishmael from the Hebrew Bible. And uh, just a brief overview, you know, Hagar, Abraham wants a son, he wants a kid, um, and he wants to hand, uh, you know, and God promises him, you know, you will have children, and they're going to hand down this covenant that I've given you, this, this set of tasks to bless all nations and things like that. Um, and so Abraham sort of, in a manner of speaking, takes matters into his own hands, and he, his, his wife uh, is well beyond the years where she could bear a child. So he, he takes one of his, his essentially slaves and the father's a child with her, Hagar, um, and they have Ishmael. And uh, it results in a lot of familial conflict. And the result is that Hagar and Ishmael are thrown out of the community. Like this woman and her infant are, are forced out of the community into the desert. And there's this, this moment I remember reading in Genesis I read this at the beginning of my mission too, which was uncanny because this became a very important story to me after my mission. And I only knew about it because I had seen it. Um, I had read it at the MTC, in fact. Um, but there's this moment where Hagar, like she knows she's going to die. And this infant has no better chance than she does. So she hides Ishmael under a bush because she can't bear to watch him die. And she goes off a little bit of a distance and she weeps, just weeps. And um, an angel comes and uh, assures her, not only is she not going to die, but uh, her son will live and her son will have 12 sons of his own, which is uncanny because Isaac, Abraham's son who carries on the covenant also has 12 sons. This is like covenantal language, except it's Ishmael, the exiled son. Um, and I, I was really taken with that, 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 the, that the Ishmael who was cast out and the Hagar that was cast out ended up being the inheritors of another covenant, in a manner of speaking. I, I know there's, you know, hermeneutical differences and theological differences there, and that's fine. I mean this on a purely literary level. Um, but I identified with Hagar and Ishmael, and I, I knew I needed to find my covenant outside of Mormonism because I felt I was cast out. Um, and so where I ended up going was um, primarily Eastern religions, actually. And I think partly because, you know, they didn't have the, the baggage that a lot of Western religious traditions had that I was familiar with. Um, not to say that they don't have baggage by any means. They're not perfect. Um, 
they have bad history of their own and bad actors of their own, but they were very, very different from what I was used to. And um, one of the big differences was with the, the, the traditions, at least that I encountered um, from India and Southeast Asia. So primar primarily Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism, uh, they tended to be very, very introspective, uh, exploring yourself internally, trying to turn inward, and understand your own emotions, ask where they're coming from. What are they? What do they mean? And uh, trying to find ways of effectively managing them, essentially. And that was something I really, really needed, um, especially after my mission. And I wasn't finding it in Mormonism. That was something that was difficult for me, was that in my particular experiences, Mormonism gave me a great language for personal development, uh, but it didn't give me a language for introspection and emotional intelligence. I didn't know what to do with my feelings. And I was having big feelings, big negative feelings that you don't testify about over the pulpit. They weren't the fun ones where I know the church is true. I know God will help me find my keys if I just ask. They were, um, I don't think I want to be a Mormon anymore. And here's why. So uh, I began meditating, actually. Um, and meditating, meditation is a, it's a broad term. It's kind of like sports in that there's a whole lot of different sports, a lot of varying different sports. And in the same way, there's a whole lot of different types of meditation, but I started learning a lot of different meditation techniques. Um, there's mindfulness, but there's also all sorts of different stuff. Like um, in uh, yoga, there's like types of meditation called uh, Trataka, where you, you focus in deliberately on a singular point, sometimes like the flame of a candle, for instance, and you focus on that. And it's um, it's a way of sort of, getting the fluctuating wandering mind to uh to learn how to focus in on one particular thought or feeling rather than being dragged by whatever pops up in your head and for me that was really useful mindfulness was also very useful but i i there's just so much to say but i think that one thing could probably encapsulate that i had this experience in when i was after my mission i moved up to provo utah and i was living on my own um and i had this I, I was learning a lot about the ego and uh, you know, there, there's a lot of different ways to explain ego and what the heck that term means. And some people will say like self rather than ego. And some people say like false self. It's a weird concept. It, it's, it's complicated, but um, I remember having this moment where I was trying to understand it and I was having a prayer at the end of my day. And I just had this sudden realization that everything I thought about myself, and everything I felt about myself was at best a very low resolution distillation of the real me. Um, and at worst, a dangerous fantasy. Like there was this moment where I had this deep disconnection between my situation and my thoughts and feelings about my situation to the point that for months after that, I had this weird feeling, not weird, but I had this, I entered this kind of like state where I was just experiencing emotional equanimity. <clears throat> I, wasn't, I wasn't reacting, I was just responding to things. And I, felt, I would feel emotions come up and then they would just immediately dissolve. Whereas before they would come up and they would you know, explode exponentially into more and more depression and more and more anxiety. And I had just months and months where I was just like, that's just a thought, it's just a feeling, it passed, there it goes. And it, it, it wasn't, I want to be really clear too, this was not repression, uh, where you, you don't want to feel something and you don't want to think something. And so you, you pack it down, you push it down. I already did. I had already done a lot of that. This was 
literally for the first time in years, maybe in the first time in my entire life, allowing myself to just think and to just feel and noticing that when I just let myself think and let myself feel and not try to tell myself about how you shouldn't feel these things, you shouldn't think these things, you don't have to feel these things, you don't have to think these things, that they just went away on their own. They just came and went. They had their say and they moved on. There's a Zen saying, um, to let your mind be like a house with a back door and a front door open and let the thoughts come in from the back door and let them leave. Just don't sit them down and serve them tea, you know? Um, and that was the experience I had. I, I, I felt like I was suddenly healing because I was suddenly allowing myself to feel and think what I felt and thought about my mission. And I knew that I was healing because I would have experiences where like, it's Provo, so there's going to be Mormon missionaries somewhere. And I, I was on a street corner. I was going to like the post office or something, and I was waiting for the light to change, and two elders popped up. And I felt nothing. Not, not in the sense of like, like emptiness, but I just felt, I felt just fine. I told them hello. They told me hello, and that was it. And I knew that I was healing. And it's been a long time. It's been years. And to a degree, I still have... Um, some emotional stuff that pops up, just debris though, but never, never anything seismic. And I, I'm really grateful for these, these traditions, these, you know, Southeast Asian and Indian traditions that, that they knew people were suffering and they tried to understand why they were suffering and they tried to develop tools to address that suffering. And they're not perfect, but they worked really, really well for me. And they helped me to find my proverbial covenant outside of Isaac. Mm. Wow. No, thank you for sharing all that. That's uh, very interesting. And, you know, you and I have had conversations where we've talked, I've asked you questions about some Eastern aspects, mostly just because I just, I want to understand it. You know, my, I'm so grounded in the West. I mean, you know, I'm a very much Western oriented. Uh, so my knowledge of the Eastern religions, um, just, I'm, I'm not really all that interested in it either. You know, that's just my personal thing. I'm just, it's yeah. not something that interests me. Uh, Mormonism does. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, but I, I want to thank you for having these conversations with me because like, uh, you know, uh, one of the things I do like, for instance, about Buddhism was I'd heard a phrase and you said, yeah, that sounds about right, which is um, a true religion is a right relationship with reality. Mm. And Absolutely. I, I think that, um, us evangelicals, we need a right relationship with reality sometimes because uh, we might have a right relationship with Jesus, but not necessarily with reality, especially in the world that it's become uh, the craziness that has infected evangelicalism. It, it, if you want really a cancer, uh, what's there's a there's quite a cancer growing in the evangelical faith right now, and mm -hmm. so it grieves me to see that happen. And I thought, well, you know, there's some wisdom in that phrase. Um, you know, if you're if you're not grounded in reality then you're not grounded and uh, you could have the right doctrine, but man, if you're, if, if you're not dealing with reality in a proper context, then you're going to be in a heck of a lot of trouble and you're going to start believing a lot of weird things. Yeah. There's um, it's, you know, and I think this is probably something we've connected on really deeply, which is that I feel like I see similar issues within the LDS church within Mormon culture there. Uh, I'm actually kind of reminded of a, of a Buddhist story. It's very brief, I promise. Um, but uh, <clears throat> Adam, Adam Miller, who's a Mormon writer, has shared this before too. So people may have heard this before, but it's the idea of like, there's a, there's a man running through a field and suddenly he's struck with an arrow. And uh, 
you, you know, the question is, uh, what do you do next when that happens? Do you, do you start asking like, where'd this arrow come from? Who shot it? What's it made of? What kind of bow did they use? Where were the, where was the archer born? What's their deal? You know, like that's, that's the level of the intellect. That's, that's the place of like doctrine. It's the place of theology. It's the, pl and, and there's a place for that sort of thing. But when you're shot with an arrow, the first thing you have to do is treat the wound. So I, I feel like it's kind of like what you're saying, which is like, you can know everything about the archer, but you're still, you've still got an arrow in you, pal. Like you gotta, you gotta deal with that at some point. I, I think that, um, I think we've tried our darndest to learn as much as we possibly can about this metaphorical archer and we've done very little to treat the arrow. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's excellent, excellent. So um, you would describe yourself as what now in regards to Mormonism? Uh, I would describe myself as probably post-Mormon. Um, for a while there, I was using the term secular Mormon because uh, I, 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 I respect the term secular Jew, for instance. And, and to be very clear, I know that Mormon is not like an ethnic identity in the same way that being Jewish is, is an ethnic identity. But I, I appreciated people like, um, I, I'm a big fan of Harold Bloom, the late Harold Bloom. He was a literary critic. And yeah, he was also, he, yeah, he was, he was raised in, um, like his first language was Yiddish. That's how much of a Jewish community he was raised in, uh, in here in the US. And, uh, but he wasn't religiously Jewish by the end of his life, but he, he still had a deep respect for Judaism. And he utilized it in a lot of his books, including his like more spiritual writings. And uh, I was really touched by that. And I kind of wanted that because I didn't necessarily want to be a Mormon, but I love Mormonism. And I, I don't necessarily have an identity that's wrapped up in Mormonism, but I still read it like literature. You know, it, it matters to me still on some level in the same way that these Eastern traditions that I've uh, indicated matter to me. And uh, so secular Mormon was kind of working. I got a bunch of, I got a bunch of, I got a bunch of conservative Mormons who thought it was very cute. So I thought I'd pivot and change. And I think post-Mormon is probably just the most accurate at this point. You gave me the analogy of how <clears throat> I'm not an ex-Mormon, I'm a post-Mormon, but it's because I graduated from it and that you, uh, appreciate, yeah, yeah, yeah. you appreciate what you learned. And so you don't yeah. really have any longer an ex to grind with the church. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you, you're able to process everything you went through and move on and appreciate it and not carry that baggage. I need to ask you, did you ever read Harold Bloom's paper about uh, within the context of the Book of Enoch that Joseph Smith is Metatron? Yes, in his book, uh, The American Religion. Yes. It's, it's brilliant. There's, um, there's another one, too, called uh, Omens of Millennium. Oh, a similar light. It's, it's, it's amazing, though. Like, Bloom really... I, he, something about him, man, he just really captured Joseph Smith. Again, like you said, like, that Joseph sort of saw himself as this Enoch or this Metatron that, that was organizing this heavenly community and uh, sort of evoking the divinity that existed within each and every member of that community already, like what, what Bloom would call the daimon, you know, um, that inner self that's ancient and, and, and holy that we are often unacquainted with. That was actually, that resonated with me quite a bit, a self that's deep inside you that you've never really met, but that's still operative, like that resonated deeply with me, um, especially when I really needed to uh, 
uh, recover, I, th I guess you could say, uh, post-mission. So you and I have kind of had interesting conversations where we kind of briefly touched on, on this is, um, you know, I had to talk to you about how I kind of, um, as COVID was just starting um, and it, it was starting to really affect people. And um, I would have described myself as mostly maybe culturally Christian and maybe agnostic at that point when COVID first started. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I've had a long, deep spiritual journey myself. I've experienced religious trauma big time. And so I've been kind of um, getting back into my faith and reengaging it on a different level. But what really struck me was when I live in a Christian community and I was, I was engaged with a group of people and they were having this conversation and they were talking about weird, weird things like this QAnon stuff and all this. And I thought, oh my goodness, I mean, this is in the real world now. And it was, they were all fearful. They were afraid. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, according to Christian theology, I should be the one that's afraid. According to the scriptures, the Christians are supposed to have the peace that surpasses all understanding. Well, why do I have a peace and they don't? And so when I took this 20-year journey out of evangelicalism and then re-engaged it, I went out into the wilderness for 20 years, returned to the village and found that the village was on fire. And so I just, all of a sudden, this began a process in which I felt all of the anxieties and fears that I had began to just melt away. And it then corresponded with me doing this channel uh, as well, where I feel like spiritually I've been growing um, in, in small ways, but I do feel the, the hand of God in some ways directing this. And many people have told me this, both LDS and restorationist and some, some Christians. And so I just wanted to share that with my audience that I've kind of had a, a kind of a fairly profound, I just remember you telling me, Nathan, you said, right, man, the way you expl explain this experience, are you sure you didn't uh, take some LSD or psilocybin? <laughs> That's right, man. <laughs> Jury's still out. No, yeah. but I, I think it's, I think it's a beautiful thing. It's, um, and this is something I think we connected on quite a bit because even, I think religion is 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 comparable to language and you can describe the same experience in different languages. So, you know, like like you said, like a lot of your Mormon and, and Christian friends um, have described this as like the spirit leading you. And I know I know we've had discussions about the uh, the feelings you've had on these experiences. If, if like a Tibetan Buddhist had heard this experience, they would say you're returning to your primordial mind or um, if a, if a, if a, a Vedantist from Hinduism had heard this, they'd say that you're uh, you're one with Brahman. Like it's it's um, but the the bottom line ends up being that you end up experiencing this this deep sense of uh, emotional equanimity. I guess you could say where like you you're able to release control of uh, especially of that which is outside of your control and to just sort of flow with what's with what's around you and what's with you to to meet your to meet the moment that you're in as sort of like a playmate rather than an antagonist or someone you have to like whip into whip into shape, you know? Well, Nathan, of course, it's the Holy Spirit operating in my life. 
<laughs> there you go, man. It, and I mean, I'm not, to, that's not at all to say it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I just want my audience to understand this is the kind of conversations that Nathan and I have been having for the last yeah. month and a half or so. And it's been a real privilege, uh, Nathan, having you on. And, you know, I, I just want to just say one thing because I'm an evangelical. And, you know, yeah. I, it, what about Jesus, man? Who's Jesus to you? It's a great question. Um, oh, goodness, I'm blanking on his name, but the gentleman you spoke to from Community of Christ. John Hamer. Uh, yes, John Hamer. He, uh, he said something really great, which is that you could talk about Jesus on very different layers. There's the historical, there's the theological, I would add there's the psychological. But um, I think if I had to give a bottom line, I would say that when Jesus shows up in my life, it's it is in contrast to all the things that I should be. So um, there's something I really love uh, from this mystic named Teresa of Avila. She's very big in Catholicism, in the Counter-Reformation especially, but she has this, she wrote a lot. Um, she left a lot behind about these very unique spiritual experiences, things that would probably be quite uncomfortable even in, in modern Catholic contexts um, or even modern Christian contexts for that matter. But she has this transition where she, she says that she would pray for health and she hated that because she knew that if she was healthy, it would, it would exacerbate the problem she was experiencing, which is that she constantly felt like she had to justify her existence. So as long as she needed, she had health, she could go do good things, and then God would like her, and it would be good that she existed. And then um, she had this series of experiences that we don't necessarily have to get into here, but she became this amazing person who, when asked what she was doing when she prays, would say, I simply allow myself to be loved. And I think that that's, I, I would add, uh, to be loved unconditionally, you know, that, that we, we are raised with and create for ourselves numerous shoulds and supposed tos and laws and things that we have to follow, things that we have to use to measure up, things that we are constantly comparing our lives to and valuing ourselves based upon. And for me, Jesus, when he comes into my life, uh, in whatever form, literary, theological, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I would consider myself agnostic as to the metaphysics of this, but I can't deny that I have had these very meaningful encounters with, at the very least, the concept of Jesus. Jesus comes to me as pure, unconditional love. There's a thing that I really like in Mormonism. Um, it drives me kind of crazy on a historical level, but Mormons love the Garden of Gethsemane when it comes to explaining the atonement. Um, and I think historically, like the first time we ever tried to say that it was exclusively or primarily the Garden of Gethsemane where the atoning work happens is John Taylor's book, The Mediation and Atonement, which is pretty late into LDS Mormonism. Um, but the Garden of Gethsemane has featured to some degree within Mormonism since the beginning, since like the Book of Mormon. Uh, but there's this, this moment, at least on a cultural level, that Mormons recognize in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus experiences not only all the pains uh, and sicknesses of every human being who ever was and ever would be, but all the sins. There's this sense in which he sees the darkest, most horrible parts of you, 
the ones that you wish were not true, but that are undeniably true. And he still says, I love you. And that's who Jesus is to me. It's the informed, I love you. It's the I love you that knows exactly how much of a, of a bastard you are and still says, I love you. So I would say you were baptized in the waters of Mormon, but I say keep on swimming in the waters of Jesus and maybe there, see where your journey takes you. Yeah, absolutely. So I just want to thank my audience for this time that we got to share. Um, Nathan, thank you so much for doing this, dude. This is a lifesaver. Absolutely, man. It was an absolute pleasure. And I'm going to try to get this thing loaded Friday, July 30th. This is when I'm taping this thing, and I'm going to do a 6 p.m. I've never done it this close to the uh, wire before because I have slow internet. And if it gets released a little later, it does. But I want to thank my audience for taking the time to listen to this conversation. I think these are important conversations that we need to have with each other. Um, I think it's good to be uncomfortable sometimes in when we have conversations and say the things, but it's important that we do speak the truth and be our authentic selves and not be afraid to um, go there. So I want to thank you, Nathan, for coming on. I want to remind my audience to like and subscribe and hit the notification uh, button so that you can be uh, informed of when a new video drops. I am going to start possibly doing Tuesdays as well. So, um, you know, down the road. So I'll be doing three days a week. So I'm very excited about that. I'm gonna provide a link to that story uh, that Nathan is going to send me right after this. And that will detail, I'm sure will detail like a very toxic uh, companion that he went with. And also some other stories that, uh, that were very interesting to me that he told me about. So uh, Nathan, Thank you for coming on. Thank you, man. And thank you to your audience. This was wonderful. All right, everybody. Peace out.